So two weeks ago, T2 started this series on the Minor Prophets, and we got kind of a 30,000-foot overview of the Minor Prophets, and so we're going to dive into the book of Hosea. We're going to finish it tonight, no matter what. So before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, again, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your mercy, for your covenant faithfulness, and your undying love for your people. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us tonight as we study Hosea. I pray that you'd be with me, give me uh, only true words to say, and give us all hearts to hear what you have to say out of the book of Isaiah, uh, Hosea. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So what, uh, what do we know about Hosea? Give me, give me some facts about Hosea. And not things like his name starts with an H. <laughs> Do we remember anything that we talked about two weeks ago or just anything that you know about Hosea? Sorry, what was that? He had a hard marriage, marriage, to put it lightly. (laughs) Yes. Yes, the children had some odd names. We'll talk about that a little bit. What else? Anything else? No, no. He had, a, he had a hard message, and he prophesied during some difficult, very difficult times for Israel. He uh, so so. We'll cover a few of those things he mentioned, and we'll get into some other facts too. Uh, Hosea, the book of Hosea was written by Hosea. And, of course, there's going to be people who question that, but we can rest assured that Hosea was indeed actually written by Hosea. We don't really know much about him. We, in fact, we know very little about him other than what the book itself tells us. It's possible that he may have been associated with uh, Bera of First Chronicles 5-6. I know you're all remembering that from First Chronicles 5 uh, if that's the case, then he would be from the tribe of Reuben. But again, that's not really certain. So we don't, we don't really even know about his lineage. His name means salvation. Uh, the first verse of the book tells us that he reigned during the, uh, sorry, he prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Jeroboam II. And so he prophesied anywhere from around 753 B.C. to 722, maybe, maybe further along into 715 after the fall of uh, the northern kingdom. He may have lived in the southern kingdom in Judah uh, after 722, after the fall. The theme of the book is God's love, though being rejected is constant, and it's, it's also about God's covenant faithfulness to his people and his zeal for the covenant and his zeal for the people. And the the overall purpose of the book is to show forth that God's love is unfailing despite Israel's unfaithfulness to him. Hosea was probably a native Israelite. He has knowledge of Israel's geography. We see that in chapters 5, 6, 12, and 14. He uses the word, the term Ephraim 37 times throughout the book. In chapter 7, verse 5, he refers to our king 
talking about the king of Israel. And his prophetic call is one of the least interesting uh, in terms of how he became a prophet. It just seems like God just talked to him and that was it. There was no grand visions. There's nothing that interesting like in Isaiah, where Isaiah has this grand vision, or Ezekiel, which is just super interesting. I was going to say very weird, but I'm not going to say that. But, you know, Ezekiel's pretty interesting. Uh, Hosea, he just, just the word comes to him in verse 2. It's interesting, uh, another thing that's interesting, a couple things about Hosea. He is the only prophet who actually lived and prophesied in the northern kingdom. None of the other ones did. And the other interesting thing is that Hosea actually does God's word before he starts to proclaim it. So God tells Hosea what to do, and he goes and does it, and then he starts to proclaim God's word to his people. As Emily mentioned, he had a very sad domestic life. Uh, He was married to an unfaithful wife named Gomer. And that brings us to probably the most difficult question in terms of interpreting the book of Hosea. And that is, was Hosea's marriage a literal historical marriage, or was it allegorical or figurative? And another question going along with that, if it was a real historical marriage, was she a harlot before they got married or did that happen after they got married? So there's several views on this, which I'll cover. The main problem is this. Would God, being a holy and good God, having given us the law that we can go back and read, Would he command one of his prophets to marry a woman who was actually some kind of prostitute or, as verse 2 says, a a wife of harlotry with children of harlotry? Would he actually do that? It, It does seem contrary to God's explicit command for a priest. Now, Hosea wasn't a priest. He was a prophet. But it is contrary to God's explicit command for a priest not to marry a harlot. We see that in Leviticus 21 and in Deuteronomy 22 a woman who is proven to be unfaithful is to be put to death. So there's this twofold dilemma here. Would God lower his standards for a prophet? And would he overlook the standard for purity of a wife? So there's some proposed solutions to this dilemma. And I have my own that I lean toward, but I'm not an expert on this. So there's the hypothetical marriage solution. And that basically says, well, it's not, it wasn't a real relationship. Hosea didn't actually marry a harlot. It's just imagery. And that's, it should just be taken as imagery. So it's almost like Hosea starts his ministry and says, what if I had gone and done this? And then this is this is you, Israel. This is, if I had married a harlot, this is how you're acting. So it's not my favorite view. Uh, I don't really like to allegorize the Bible or take things figuratively unless it's pretty clear that we're actually supposed to. And it doesn't seem like we're supposed to in this case. There's a few different ways of taking this literally. 
The first one is that Hosea did indeed marry a harlot. It doesn't deny the historical reality that, that is presented here. And they would say, for the sake of the message, God overlooked the implications of having one of his prophets marry a harlot. The second view is an interesting one, and it has some biblical um, weight behind it. You, you could defend this, this uh, biblically. And that is that harlotry, the word there, doesn't actually refer to sexual immorality. And that's true. In some cases in the Bible, harlotry is, is another word for idolatry. That it's not literally that she was a harlot. It's just that she was an, an, an idolater. But this doesn't really seem to be consistent with what it says right here in verse 2, that the children are children of harlotry as well. Unless you're going to say the children were also idolaters, I suppose. The third view is called the proleptic view. And that's that Gomer was sexually pure at the beginning of the marriage, but she would soon become unfaithful. So proleptic simply means we're going to take, we're going to describe someone in a way that they're not right now, but later events is going to prove that that's actually the way they are. So God is telling, basically God would say to Hosea, you're going to go and marry this woman who is going, basically is going to become a harlot after you get married. So even though it doesn't apply at the moment, it does apply to her eventually. The fourth view is kind of a hybrid view. It says that Gomer was pure. She hadn't become a harlot yet, but she had those leanings. And she was leaning toward that even at the time of marriage. So God revealed to Hosea, Gomer has this heart of harlotry in her, but you're going to marry her anyway. And then she's going to commit harlotry and, and so on. So she would be faithful to Hosea for a short time, and then she would become a prostitute, possibly even a temple prostitute later on in their marriage. And these last two are the kind of the ones that I, I lean toward. Uh, it's interesting in this hybrid view that that's basically exactly what Israel did, is they, would, they were faithful for a little bit, a little bit, and then they would leave uh, the true worship of God. And God knew that they were going to do this. You know, when, he, when he's talking to them, when, they're, when he's talking to Moses, and they bring them out of, the, out of Egypt, and they're wandering, and he tells them that they're going to be unfaithful. And so he redeems them, just like he redeems us, even though he knows that we're sinful and we are unfaithful at times. So those are the, those are the views of what it means that, that Gomer is a harlot here in, in uh, the beginning of Hosea. So let's talk just a little bit of historical background before we go through the book. The northern kingdom in 755, 753, that, that range of time, was, had been in a state of prosperity. Things were, were pretty good, but they saw a rapid decline from about 750 to 722 uh, in the fall of the northern kingdom. Over Jeroboam II, uh, things were going well, but over the next 25 years, the northern kingdom would have six different kings, four of whom were assassinated. Two of the, uh, one of them became a political prisoner, and only one of them was actually succeeded, succeeded by a son. 
During this time, the Syro-Ephraimite War saw Israel form an alliance with Syria. And they were doing this in order to kind of try to hold back the Assyrian Empire who was knocking on the door. Pekah of Israel, one of the kings, attacks Judah because Judah refused to join the alliance. So in the north, they're getting pressure from the Assyrians. They make an alliance with Syria. They ask Judah to join them. Judah says no, so they attack Judah. Judah calls on the Assyrians for help, and Assyria attacks Syria. So Assyria attacks Syria. And the result of this is that much of the northern kingdom... Much of that territory is subjugated to Assyria, and this would eventually end in the fall of the northern kingdom in 722. Israel, if when we read, as you read through Hosea, uh, Hosea you're going to see them, references to Egypt and Assyria. And so the northern kingdom was trying to get aid from Egypt. They're trying to get aid from Assyria, but this doesn't work at all, and it ends in their demise. Uh, the northern kingdom had become spiritually very corrupt, and it was striking to me as I was studying this, the uh, maybe not in specifics, but just the, the moral decline of the Northern Kingdom is reflected in the United States today. Uh, some of the things that they were doing, the Canaanite fertility rituals were being incorporated into their own worship. So they were taking ideas from outside of what the Lord had prescribed and adding it into their own regular worship. And I don't remember who I was talking to, but I was talking to someone recently about uh, just churches around town, and they were telling me about Westminster, maybe I shouldn't say the name, (laughs) a Presbyterian church here in town. (laughs) And they were describing what the worship was like, and I was like, this isn't even close to Christianity. It's like, New Age ideas mixed in with what might be considered Christianity, and then there's Bible reading, and then there's story. It is wild. And this is what they were doing in Israel. They were taking uh, ideas from other religions like Baal worship and Canaanite fertility stuff, and they were adding it to the worship of the Lord. So they had sex rites, they had ritual prostitution, which Gomer was probably involved in and other perversions I won't speak of. Baal worship was incorporated into it and to the point where the priests themselves were corrupt. It's not just that they had failed to teach the people the true religion, but they had at times sponsored false religion as well. So the priests were terrible, terrible uh, teachers. Just a a little bit more historical context, Uh, Hosea is preaching, prophesying at the same time as Isaiah is, and Micah, and also Amos. So we have Jonah's before this, and then we have Isaiah, Micah, Amos, and Hosea are all prophesying at the same time, and then we'll have Joel afterwards and, and the others as well. Any questions so far? Excellent. So we're going to go through just a quick outline, verse by verse, of the entire book. Not really. (laughs) We're going to go through just a kind of a a chronological outline of the events that happen in Hosea, mostly based around chapters 1 through 3. 
So we have in, in, uh, in chapter one here, God instructs Hosea to marry Gomer, and he goes and does that. He marries her, and they have their first child. The Lord instructs Hosea to name this child Jezreel, and he does so. We'll talk a little bit about that later. And then they have two more children. And this is where things get a little cloudy because we're not quite sure if Gomer had the children by Hosea or if it was by harlotry. We're not quite sure, but it seems like maybe it was from adulterous relationships that she had. After this, Gomer leaves Hosea for a life of sin. And it's at this time, perhaps, that Hosea actually writes chapters one and two of of his book, realizing that God has, in effect, commanded him to take an adulterous wife and illegitimate children so that he can use that to speak to the people in the northern kingdom. Gomer sinks into worse idolatry and actually even becomes a slave at one point. We see that in chapter 3, verse 2. And then God instructs Hosea to take her back. Uh, This is possibly 15 to 20 years after their initial marriage. So a long time has passed. She's become a slave, and then God instructs him to take her back. So he does that. He takes her home again. And then after that, he writes the rest of the book. So let's talk about some key passages. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 2 says, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. This really sets the stage for the entire book. He's commanded to take a wife of harlotry because that's exactly what the children of Israel have done. They have departed from God. In verse 4, it says this, Then the Lord said to him, Call his name, so this is his first son, uh, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Jezreel, if you remember, is where Jehu killed all of Ahab's sons and cut off the line of Ahab, and he was commended for this. And his dynasty started, but then his dynasty would end in a similar way, so this is why he's named Jezreel. Jehu's line would end when Shalom assassinates Zechariah, so his line is cut off in the same way that Ahab's line is cut off. In, uh, in verse 6, and, and that, again, that results in the fall of the northern kingdom, so that's why that's significant. In verse 6, they have a daughter. It says, and, then, and she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. So the name literally means no mercy, not the kind of name you want to name your kid, but that's what the Lord has Hosea do. In verse 8, we read she has another child, a son, and there's no reference to Isaiah here, or Hosea, excuse me. Uh, But God says, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So you can see this is very serious, that the Lord is cutting off his people at this point, and he's giving them very vivid pictures of what he's going to do. 
However, as is very common in the prophets, when the Lord is telling people there's going to be judgment, he also reminds them that he will eventually restore them. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, God announces the restoration of Israel, and he contrasts the names that he gave to Hosea's son and daughter when he says this. He says, say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. So again, a very vivid picture of what's going on here. In uh, verse 2, again, we read that God will divorce Israel because of their unfaithfulness. And uh, in verse 20 of chapter 2, another key verse, he says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And this is, a, this is an interesting thing because the people didn't think that they were estranged from God. They were completely clueless as to how things had gotten in Israel. They thought that they were serving God. And, uh, and they thought that they were serving the true God. But he tells them here, when I restore you, then you will actually know me. Basically telling them, you don't know me right now, but you will eventually. Turn to uh, chapter 3. And this is where Gomer is reunited with Hosea. He purchases her out of slavery for 15 shekels of silver and one half homer of barley, which if we go back and we look at Exodus 21, verse 32, that's about the cost of a slave. So that's, that's why we think that she was actually a slave at this point. In uh, verse 5, after Israel is taken captive, they too will seek the Lord, just like Hosea sought out Gomer in slavery the people of Israel are going to be exiled to Babylon, and the Lord will seek them. Verse 5 says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Any questions about that first section? It's actually the second section. Yeah? With the naming of the children, are we... Uh, I think these were literal. I, in, when I w was preparing for this, I didn't come across anything that suggested that they were not literal names. So I take it to be literal. He actually named them this. So, so that's actually the second section. You can divide the book into three sections. The first section is verse 1 of chapter 1, the introduction to the book. And then we have uh, chapters 2 and 3 is the second section, and then the last section is chapters 4 through 14, which is the bulk of the charges against Israel and how they will be restored eventually. Is that the part you want to do? Yeah, yeah, starting now. Thank you, Scott. So we basically have, uh, in section 3 of this, we have three main sections within it. We have... Three charges. The first one is failing to acknowledge God. This is like chapters 4 through the beginning of chapter 6. We have the second charge is breaking God's covenant, which is chapters 6 through middle of 11. And then the final charge would be faithlessness, which would be the rest of the book, basically. 
and I'm rapidly running out of time, and I have way too many pages left. So bear with me as I figure out how I'm going to get through this. <laughs> so the first charge is that they failed to acknowledge God. And th- this, is, this is the big case against Israel, that they actually don't know God. So in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's, the Lord says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. So in incorporating this, this false worship of God into the true religion, God says, you don't have any knowledge of me at all. They had divided hearts. They, they seemed to want to serve God, and yet they wanted to serve other gods as well. And God says, you can't do that. In verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being a priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. This lack of knowledge of God is is seen throughout the the book in several different places. In uh, chapter 5, verse 4, it says, They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for their spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. So he charges them with this, and then, like I said, often there's either, either a statement of hope that even though you're acting like this, there is hope for you, or there's a call to repentance, and that's what happens in chapter 6. There's uh, this call to repentance in verses 1 through 3. It says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord, his going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain on the earth. The second charge is that they had broken God's covenant, and this is chapters 6 through 11. So Israel was unfaithful, and in verses 6 through uh, 7, we get, we get this description of their unfaithfulness. And then in verse 8, he announces their judgment. And yet, there, uh, chapter 8, verse 2 says, My God, we know you. So there's, Israel still doesn't get it, right? And if you read through chapter 8, which we will not do now, you'll see that they do not know God. Their actions betray this. They say in verse 2, we know you. But then he describes the way that they're acting, and it's clear that they don't know him. Chapters 9 and 10 deal with their, their guilt and their punishment. And then chapter 11, we kind of turn a corner and, and we see God's faithfulness and his love to them. And then we get to the third charge in chapters 11 through 14, which is that they have been faith, faithless. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about while I have two minutes left is the New Testament use of Hosea. And I'm probably going to go over a little bit. I'm sorry about that. But we see the New Testament using the book of Hosea in Romans 9.25 and 1 Peter 2.10. Those, those passages both state that those who are not God's people will be God's people. Romans 9.25 says, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who was not my beloved. And then in uh, 1 Peter 2.10 says, 
who were once not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, if you read commentators, a lot of them are going to say that the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament to not, not to refer to the northern tribes, but to refer to the Gentiles. But Dr. Battle actually argues in a paper that he wrote that it's referring to both. It's referring both to Israel, who will be redeemed in their future conversion, but also to the Gentiles as well. Hosea 10.8 is also quoted in the New Testament in Luke 23.30 and Revelation 6.16. says, uh, the cry that the mountains would cover the wicked to hide them from God's judgment. And then Hosea 11, verse 1, is also quoted in Matthew 2.15. So did you know that Hosea is quoted this much in the New Testament? So Scott did, but I don't think anyone else did. I didn't. <laughs> so it takes this quotation from the statement that God took his son out of Egypt, referring to Israel under Moses, and applies it to Jesus coming out of Egypt as a young boy. So this quotation it requires Israel to be understood as a type of Christ, as a son of God. And uh, it's, it's what we call a case of historical corporate solidarity. It's not an explicit messianic prediction, but it's there. So Hosea 11.1 1 says, when, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then in Matthew 2.15 says, uh, starting in verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, that being Hosea, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. We also see Hosea 13, 14 quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. There's this, uh, this is the promise that God will be the plague of death and destruction of Sheol. And Paul links that to the resurrection at the last day. So Hosea 13, 14 says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. And that sounds like 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't it? It says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last one I'll mention here is Hosea 6.2. There's a possible allusion to it in 1 Corinthians 15.4. So Hosea 6.2 says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And then 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So very interesting that Hosea is actually used this much in the New Testament, and uh, that the whole book is really worthy of our study. So the, the question that I have to leave you with today is... The, the, uh, what Israel thought they knew. And that is, do you know the Lord? The people of Israel were just completely oblivious that they had no knowledge of God. And yet they thought they did. And this is not something new either. This is something that, that uh, Jesus talked about. 
In Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, not pro- have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, it may seem to you like this is a warning that we don't need to hear because we're all believers, right? But the people who do not heed that warning are the ones who are not believers. The, the warnings that the scriptures give us to examine ourselves and make sure that we are in the faith are for believers so that they don't fall away. And so those are warnings that we need to heed. I wish that I could read chapter 14 to close uh, because it gives us a great picture of what it looks like to actually repent of our sins and, and a beautiful picture of how the Lord restores his people. Hosea is, it's almost just 13 chapters of doom and gloom, right? There's sparks of hope sprinkled throughout it for sure, but it ends on a really high note that the the people are going to be brought back into the sheepfold that the Lord is going to restore Israel and he will restore us as well if we are repentant. So if you have any questions, I can answer them after I pray.